Grace Family Church of Rhode Island presents Word of Hope, a sermon series with Pastor Luciano Cozzi. Welcome. The Word of Hope sermon series is a ministry of Grace Family Church of Rhode Island. It was instituted to bring sound teachings from the Word of God to as many people as possible. Our purpose is to offer you a message that is both practical and contemporary, that brings the Word of God to light in a way that makes sense in daily life. As you listen to this message, it is our hope and prayer that the Lord will bless you through it and bring you hope, comfort, and guidance. And now, Pastor Kotze. How often I wonder, we truly rejoice when someone else is blessed. I wonder because in our human nature, you know what happens, and I don't know, maybe it never happened to you, but I suspect that if you're any close to being a human being, you probably experience that. Someone is being blessed by God and, oh man, maybe I needed to be blessed. And sometimes even worse, perhaps something happens to someone and perhaps inside us there is a little, a little voice that says, see, they deserved it. They call for it, they get it. Our human nature is strange, isn't it? But praise be to God, he, he guides us with the Holy Spirit to be different. He changes our hearts and he calls us to rejoice with those that rejoice, they rejoice with those who are blessed and, and to cry with those who suffer. And not be so selfish or self-centered to, to just want good things happen to us only. And what does it have to do with this passage here in Acts 11? It's more than perhaps we, it meets the eyes at first. Because there is a great deal in this segment of Scripture, a great deal about attitudes, a great deal about prejudice, a great deal about God's blessing, and a great good news indeed in that as well. So what's the context? Well, Peter had just visited and baptized a Gentile, a centurion, a Roman centurion, Cornelius. From a Jewish perspective, that was a shocking action. Not only because he went to the house of a Gentile and fellowshiped with Gentiles, but he was a Roman centurion. From a Jewish perspective, he was an enemy of Judah, an invader. That obviously caused a negative reaction among the Jewish believers back in Jerusalem. And the incident, in fact, was regarded as violating Hebrew customs and presuppositions, the ideas, the concepts they had to do or not to do. When Peter explained what happened, however, the others became convinced that God had ordered these circumstances and that caused them to happen in a certain way and blessed them. And it is because of that that the Jerusalem church began to accept the evidence that God had granted spiritual renewal, a new birth, conversion, forgiveness to the Gentiles as well. A bit reluctantly at first, but there was a big change and a very important moment in the history of the early church, so much so that some scholars even call it the second Pentecost. You know, the first Pentecost is when God began the church by granting and giving the Holy Spirit to the disciples of Jesus in Jerusalem. Some scholars call this 
The second Pentecost, because now God is starting the church among the Gentiles as well, in pretty much the same way as he did in the first Pentecost. So let's look at this passage a little more closely and learn important lessons from it. In uh, verses 1 to 3, we read now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Now, when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with them, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Well, what's going on here? First of all, those who were circumcised, it, it is quite likely that this may refer to, to those believers who were zealous in keeping the law in their worship and practice of Christianity. Most Jewish believers thought that God had offered salvation only to the Jews. And it is possible that with that statement, those who were circumcised, I mean, it does not necessarily mean only the, the Jews, but those who place particular emphasis on that fact, on that circumcision. Anyway, it would make, uh, you know, pretty much sense because at that time, the church was comprised of Jews, and this was the, the first opening to the Gentiles. Now notice what he says, they heard that the Gentiles also have received the word of God. And, and here, um, immediately, we, we begin to see the human nature at work. How quickly a rumor spreads. Peter arrives in Jerusalem, and they already heard that he went to a Gentile home in Caesarea, and he ate with the Gentiles. The brethren in Jerusalem already heard about what happened with Cornelius. So one thing to keep in mind as part of a lesson here is that gossip travels really fast. It finds a way to go fast. So let me share a piece of advice with all of us. The best way to stop the gossip is not to start it. Because once it's started, it's going to go so fast. It's almost like trying to stop a bullet after you pull the trigger. Sorry too late. Now, notice the other statement that is made here in verse uh, 2. They took issue with them. Uh, and, and, and I read that, and I pause for a second and say, wait a minute. God has just opened the way for redemption and salvation to the Gentiles, and these people are taking issue with Peter. What is so serious? What is so important in their hearts and minds to fight with Peter about what Peter had done? Because they ate with the Gentiles. And now I, I, I scratch my head and I say, wait, wait a minute. Okay, I understand that back in that culture, eating with someone means to fellowship with that, that someone. And even in Italy, as I was growing up, there was a, a statement that sometimes people would say and say, who are you? I never ate with you. Okay, meaning I don't have anything to share with you. Uh, you're not part of my family. You're not my, ho my guest or my host. We'd, we don't have that fellowship that is symbolized by eating together. Okay, fine. I understand it. But in the scope of things in here, in what is going on, what is that is bugging the mind and the hearts of these people is the fact that Peter sat at the table and ate with Gentiles. It is not a matter of whether the gospel should reach them or not, but whether Peter, a Jew, should have fellowshiped with Gentiles or not. It's a ceremonial matter. What was the particular problem with that? Well, you see, when you had contact with the Gentiles, ceremonially, it would be made unclean. And the Jews had taken that to the nth degree and isolated themselves and wanted nothing to do with any Gentile. 
Look at verse 4. Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying. Notice that Peter's emphasizing the fact that he was praying. And in a trance, I saw a vision, an object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky. And it came right down to me, and when I had fixed my gaze on it and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures of the birds and the birds of the air. And I also heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter probably at that moment went, yuck, right? But notice what's going on here. Peter is now in Jerusalem. He's being contrasted. He's being confronted by the Jews' uh, brothers and, and, and sisters, brothers in, in the church in Jerusalem. And he started explaining things. But notice what it says, in an orderly sequence. How quickly do we criticize rather than seeking to understand? Notice that one thing is not occurring here is that the, the, the Jewish members of the church in Jerusalem did not ask a question first. They criticized them first. Isn't that the way it usually goes? We are so quick to accuse, so slow to ask questions and to try to really understand what's going on. Because after all, we only see our side of things, don't we? And when we criticize, we feel like we are reinforcing our perspective and our view in things. We're not so interested in understanding why somebody else might have done or said what he did or said. But the situation in Jerusalem here, please, let's understand, was volatile. It was critical. Peter could have reacted to their accusations and stirred up a conflict within the church that could have caused division right at the onset. But by the grace of God, he didn't. Communication, proper communication, is very important. Speaking the truth in love is vital in order to keep harmony. And by the grace of God, Peter did that. Now, Peter could have easily said, well, listen, I don't have to speak with you. I don't have to give account to you. In fact, it's so easy for us when we are in a disagreement or in a conflict to say, okay, fine, I don't talk to you anymore, and that, that, that resolves the conflict because my way is my way or the highway, either my way or I don't speak to you anymore. But what would that have done? That would have caused a great split and a great division in the church in Jerusalem right at the beginning. Peter responded to the criticism with kindness and clear communication, relating what had happened clearly and in order so that they would understand. He did not accuse back. He did not fight back. He did not start yelling at them. He did not say, the Lord gave me authority or whatever he might have said that, is, that would have been carnal and human to say. He related the facts. And as he related the facts, he also shared how shocked he was. And what God was now showing him and revealing to him. Verse 8, but I said, notice how Peter responds to the vision. By no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. Not only that was the actual response of Peter, so he's speaking the truth, but he's also speaking the truth in love because now he's making the point with the Jewish brothers that he is one of them. He has the same reaction that they probably have at this moment hearing about that vision. And, and Peter is saying, yeah, I, I shared with you the same objection. Well, are you kidding me? I don't want to touch anything unclean. I don't want to touch anything that the Lord had prohibited to touch in the Old Testament. And then he goes on and he says, but a voice from heaven answered a second time, what God has cleansed no longer considered unholy. 
And this happened three times. And then everything was drawn back up into the sky. So, yes, Peter related his objection to eating anything that was deemed unclean. But then a voice from heaven tells him to no longer consider unholy what God has cleansed. What was that referring to? Was it a matter of foods or was it something much more important than that? His audience must have been shocked. But Peter's objection now, the fact that Peter said, I objected to this vision, kept their attention. And they kept on wondering what happened next. Notice that as Peter goes in order and in kindness, he is able to explain things that these people needed to hear before a mess would occur. A big fight would break out. His audience, now attentive, was able to hear that this happened three times. There is a stress that Peter placed on that three times. It's an important detail. And after the vision had been repeated three times, it ended. So you can imagine being among the Jewish brethren, and and you ask yourself, okay, what's the meaning of that? Why would God do that? Why would a vision be repeated three times and then, boom, gone? And in verse 11, explains it. As they're probably wondering in their mind, they hear Peter saying, and behold, at that moment, at that moment, three men appeared at the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. And these six brethren here also went with me. And we entered the man's house, meaning Cornelius' house. Now notice a connection between the vision repeating three times and the three Gentile people all of a sudden being there at the house asking for Peter. And the Holy Spirit enabled Peter to understand the meaning of a vision. And the meaning of a vision is clear in the context here that he was not to refuse to go with these three people that normally would be regarded as being unholy and unclean. But the vision had clearly told Peter, Peter, do not regard anything unholy that I have cleansed. Just because these people are not Jews was not enough anymore. It is God who makes someone clean, not their ancestry. It is God who cleanses us, not our traditions. It is God who cleanses us and not our ceremonies or our rituals. And if we confuse the two, we may end up making big mistakes. So Peter went to Cornelius' house, and contrary to what a Jew would normally do, he entered and accepted the fellowship of these Gentile family. But he took six brethren with him. He did not want to be there on, on his own. And there was good reason for that, because these six brethren that were with him became witnesses of all that would happen. The salvation would be offered to the Gentiles as well was difficult to accept. It was a very hard thing to accept for the Jewish believers. And and notice a lesson in that too. How often we tend to accept only the parts of God's word, the Bible, that agree with us and seem to support our own thoughts Oh, I like this passage because it says what I want to hear. But the other passage? Oh, the other passage, I, I, I don't know. I just don't look at it because I, 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 don't, I don't like to hear what it says. We tend to ignore the truths that we don't like in this, in this book. But you see, Scripture is not a menu that we can just open and pick from. Let's see, what are we going to eat today, right? Scripture needs to be taken as a whole. We must accept the entire counsel of God in Scripture, not just what we like. And while the temptation of a Jerusalem church would be to accept those parts that seem to resonate with them, the whole counsel of God already had mentioned in Scripture that God would share the good news with all the world. 
So it shouldn't have been as shocking when God opened the door for the Gentiles as well. But Peter continues in his, in his report and reported how he had seen, I mean, Cornelius, and Peter said that Cornelius reported to him how he had seen the angel standing in his house and telling him to send to Joppa to have Simon, also called Peter, brought to his house. And Cornelius told Peter that the, the angel told him that Peter would speak words by which Cornelius would be saved, he and all his household. Notice the statement about the angel standing in the house of Cornelius. It was important for the Jewish believers to know that an angelic messenger had visited Cornelius and told him what he was to do, to call Peter. Cornelius obeyed the instructions of the angel. So how would Peter then ignore that? How would the church in Jerusalem ignore that? Now this is a statement in verse 14. He will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. How important is it to share God's word? Let's think about it. He will speak to you words by which you will be saved, you and all your household. How important is it for all of us to share God's word? You see, the gospel is a very powerful message that leads people to the saving ministry of Jesus Christ. It's very powerful and it's extremely important. And no matter who the audience is, people you relate to or people that are strangers to you or even people you don't like, yes, even people that we don't like, they need to hear the gospel. Desperately so. In fact, sometimes the, the comment is made, especially those who we don't like. But the message is powerful, the message is vital, and the message has been entrusted to us, not so that we can just selfishly keep it for ourselves and think of ourselves as being better than everybody else because God has been gracious with us, but because we are to share it with everybody else. And it's easy to share the good news with those we like, maybe not so easy to share the good news with those we don't like. But that does not mean that they don't need it. They need those words that will attract them. They need those words that will lead them to Christ, to the saving grace of Christ. Now, we can't save anybody. You cannot save anyone. I cannot save anyone, but Christ does. And our job is not to save people, but it's to draw them to Christ, to lead them to Christ in such a way that he will offer them salvation. In verse 15, Peter continues to relate the events, and he says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave them the same gift as he gave to us also, after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? The Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon the apostles, the disciples at the beginning. Now, how did the Holy Spirit fall on the Jewish disciples at first? Well, in a visible manner. And how did he fall on the Gentiles? In a similar visible manner, he came upon the Gentile believers as well. That's why some of the scholars called this a second Pentecost. It's now opening and starting out the church among the Gentiles. But there was no difference between the way in which the Holy Spirit had started the church among the Jewish believer and the way he extended it to the Gentile believers. So if the Holy Spirit acted the same way and gave them the same gift, meaning the gift of the Holy Spirit, then Peter had a good argument. Who am I to stand in God's way? 
Peter was stunned by what had happened. But is he going now to stand up and say, God, you made a mistake? God, you did, you, you did something wrong? You know, we, we attend the church, meaning we come together because we are the church. The church is not the building we are meeting in. We are the church. So we gather together, we come together, and oh, wait a minute. All of a sudden, oops, here's the person that hurt me two years ago or ten years ago. How can I fellowship in this place when there is that person right here that hurt me 10 years ago? I'll tell you how. By acknowledging and praising God that God is working with that person as well. Because they need God too. They need salvation too. You see, the renewal that they had experienced, that the church in Jerusalem had experienced, now was granted to the Gentiles as well. The Creator God invites all people to enter into an eternal relationship with Him. All people, regardless of their ethnic or national background, regardless of their language, regardless of their color, regardless of even their past. You know, sometimes I chuckle when, when churches ask, you know, or looking for someone for a specific office, maybe a pastor or, or some other office within the church. And they have all these expectations. And the reason why I chuckle is because sometimes they look and say, okay, where do you come from? Tell me about your past. Have you served in a good church that we approve of? Have you done the things that we want you to, to see having done? And you know, I chuckle because my answer would be, you want to know about my past? It's pretty rotten. You want to know about my past? I've done all the wrong things you can think of. Did I serve always well? No, I didn't. Was I a good person? No, I wasn't. But by the grace of God, I'm here. And I chuckle because sometimes I'm thinking of the Apostle Paul and his credentials. Let me see, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees, staunch, staunch Jew, leaning on the law in everything, persecuting the church, causing brothers and sisters in Christ being killed. Let me see, how many churches would hire him? Racism is a great evil. You know why? Because it denies that important truth, that salvation of God is open to everyone. We are not better than anybody else. I don't care the way we dress. I don't care the color of our skin. I don't care where we come from. Yes, someone who comes from Italy who speaks with an accent is addressing you right now. You know, I don't care where I come from or where you come from because we're here to be one in Christ. And I hope you don't get confused by those trivial matters either. The renewal that we are granted by the Holy Spirit is the ultimate renewal. It's a new birth. Paul summarized in those famous words that we see over and over again because it's a beautiful summary because Paul says, I am dead. I am dead to myself, but I'm alive in Christ. Christ is the one who lives in me now. It's a new birth. It's a new life. It's a new way of being. It transcends our origins. It transcends our races. It transcends all the prejudice. It transcends our problems. It transcends our fights, our stubbornness. And he gives us all a new beginning. So if we have a new beginning, why in the world do I have to worry about where we come from? If we all start fresh in Christ, if it's a new birth in Christ, what does it matter where I was born to begin with? What does it matter whether I am light-skinned or dark-skinned? What does it matter if I speak with an accent instead of another accent? We all have a new birth, don't we? We're new creatures in Christ, a new creation in Christ. So why don't we look at the newness instead of the oldness? Why don't we look at the opportunity that we have in Christ instead of the prejudice that we hold with one another? 
And why are we willing to forgive one another when issues arise? Why do we have to hold a grudge because someone said something to me or did something to me that hurt me? We're to be new in Christ. So let's go of the old things. Let them be. Let go of them. And let's be new the way we are made and created in Christ. And verse 18, notice what happened in the Jerusalem church. And when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, Say, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. It was an important turning point for the church. The fact that they praise God speaks to the health of the early church. Yes, the early church was not perfect, but it was healthy because it was open to the guidance and the lead of the Holy Spirit and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gives us an important clue as to what makes a Christian, as well as a church, healthy even today. A healthy church is not the church that stands up and says, I've always been right. A healthy Christian is not an individual who stands up and says, I am right. A healthy Christian and a healthy church is a, a person or a group of people who stand up and say, Lord, please guide me, even if that means to show me how wrong I am. It's a church that is open to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. It's a church that is open to the guidance of the Lord. It's a church that wants to participate in who he is and what he does to the point of saying, enough. Enough to what? Enough to what I want. Enough about what I want. And let me ask now, what, Lord, what are you doing? And thank you for the awesome privilege of following you. The willingness to surrender to the Lord and to change as necessary, that is the mark of a healthy church. Not the stubbornness and the, and the pride to say, I've always been right, therefore I am better than fill in the blank. Overcoming our own ways to follow the Lord. Leaving our ways behind to welcome the newness of life that we have in him and the new life in him. So brothers and sisters, we're all blessed to be able to be part of the body of Christ, aren't we? We need to remember that this is not our body, though. This is not our church. It is his church. Sometimes I have conversations with people, and, and not always, please, I'm, I'm not always that obnoxious. <coughs> don't, I don't want to give you that idea, but sometimes when it is important and relevant because of the conversation that we have, and people say, well, my church, I stop and I say, your church? I didn't know you had a church. And they pause and think for a second usually and say, well, well, I mean the church where I go. Well, I thought there was only one church, wasn't there? It is not our body. It's not our church, but it is his church. And at times he leads us through changes that are difficult to accept. Personal changes as well as collective changes. And when is the last time that the Lord asked you to change something? When is the last time that the Lord told you, take your responsibility seriously? Because as a Christian, as you take your responsibility and fulfill your responsibility, you speak volumes about the name of Jesus Christ. When is the last time that the Lord told you you must forgive the person that you have a hard time forgiving? Oh yeah, we can all forgive the person that we like. But wait, if I like the person and what they do, what do I have to forgive? Isn't the fact that I need to forgive the person in itself an indication they've done something I don't like or something that hurts? I never had to forgive my wife when she pays a compliment to me. I may think twice about her thinking sometimes, but I never had to forgive her for that. But when I have to forgive someone, it means that either they hurt me or somehow they said something wrong or did something wrong or whatever the case may be, isn't it? 
You see, the Lord has called us to preserve the faith that he entrusted to the body of Christ. And that is so true. But we are not called to hold to prejudice or favoritism because it is really not our faith. It's his faith. It is not our truth. It is his truth. And if we have it, it is not something we need to boast about or be prejudiced about because it is indeed, it is part of grace. We have a privilege of being allowed to take part in his work. And as we do so, by the way, yes, as we do so, as we take part, active part in his work, we experience personal renewal, change, transformation, growth. And sometimes it's not easy. Sometimes to be part of his work, we need to do things that are hard. But as we overcome that in him, and as he guides us, then we grow. I remember when I was in Bible college, I remember I had to do something particularly difficult, and I confided with one of the professors that, I, I don't know, I don't know, you know, should I really do that? Should I not? Should I expose myself to that difficult thing, or should I just chicken out and avoid it? And he said, Luciano, if the Lord has called you to do that, it may be difficult now, but there's one thing I can guarantee you, it will never be the same ever again. And that means that God is shaping you through that difficulty. God is shaping you through that trial. So go, face it, and trust him that he will do with you the work that he needs to do to make you the person he wants you to be. And what else can you say to that but amen? So let us praise the Lord for his calling, a calling that is not just for those we relate to or for ourselves, a calling that is for everyone, everyone around us, every person, every people, every nation, every status, every color, every anything. Yes, it's a calling that is also for our enemy, those who don't like us, those who do wrong to us. Let us be Christians. Let us be followers of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ gave his life for those who hated him. And as we are his disciples, so we are willing to forgive. We are willing to reconcile. We are willing to look beyond the differences. We are, looking be, we are willing to look beyond the prejudice and to realize and understand that when we stand before God, when we stand before Jesus Christ, we're all on the same level. Regardless of our income, regardless of our ties or, or the lack of it, regardless of our clothing, regardless of anything. Because before him there is no Jew, no Greek, no male or female, no rich or poor, but we are our one in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And to that I would say amen.